This is our fifth session of the holiness movement, <clears throat> the good, the bad, and the ugly. When I suggested this title to Pastor Ken, I never mentioned the name Clint Eastwood. And I still wonder this to this day whether he knows about the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and if he's up on his spaghetti westerns. I, I just don't know. Everything about worldliness he learned from me. So I'll have to educate him later about this. Thank you for being here. Next week is our last week, so you'll only have to put up with me one more week. And you may have been wondering, what did I get myself into when uh, this thing started? And uh, that's what you get when you're being taught by a seminary professor or ex-seminary professor. And I heard a story that may help you to uh, understand what's been happening to you here the last few weeks. There are a couple of fellows who decided to go up into a hot air balloon. So they go up in the balloon. They're having a great time sailing around the country, drifting around. But after a while, they realize they don't know where they're at. They look down, and they can't really tell by the ground, looking at the ground, exactly where they're at anymore. They've lost track of their location. And as they are drifting along, they look out to where they're going toward the horizon, and they see a kind of a hill, a small mountain out there. And they realize they're approaching this hill. And as they get closer, they realize they're going to go right over the top of this hill. And as they get right up to it, they see there's a man standing on the top of the hill. And so they go across, and they see the man, and they shout down to the man on the hill, and they say, Hey, friend, can you tell us where we're at? And so the fellow looks up and says, Yeah, you're in a hot air balloon. <laughs> so... So one man in the balloon turns to the other and says, you know, that fella down there, he was a seminary professor. <laughs> and he said, well, how could you possibly know that? Well, because what he said was factual, but it had no practical value. <laughs> so come on in, get your notes, and maybe we'll get some practical value. We'll see. Let's review last week. Last week, we began our evaluation of the holiness movement. We spent three weeks sort of giving the history of the holiness movement that started with John Wesley, culminated in Keswick theology. And we said Keswick theology reached the height of its popularity and influence in the 20th century. Keswick's teaching is still with us. Holiness teaching is still with us. There are a number of holiness denominations and churches that still teach John Wesley's Doctrine of Entire Sanctification. And many churches, evangelical churches, that teach what we've been talking about with Keswick theology. And we, uh, the diagram the, that I have there, we were trying to show what Keswick theology and Second Blessing theologies teach. That a person is saved, they're justified, they're declared righteous... But they don't necessarily begin the process of sanctification until much later. Because sanctification is a second work, a second faith. 
You have to believe again, and you have to have this second work of grace, sanctification. Until then, you're sort of a carnal Christian. You're a Christian, but that's about it. You act pretty much like an unbeliever, except you are a Christian, until you get this dedication, consecration, and then you become a spiritual Christian. So last week, I tried to demonstrate from Romans 6 that sanctification is the inevitable result of our conversion. That is, the moment we're converted, sanctification begins. God starts the process. He works on us. And so I tried to show last week from Romans 6 that sanctification is the inevitable result in which we died to sin as our master and became slaves to righteousness. When God declares us righteous, he immediately sets out to make us righteous or holy. So we have a couple of benefits from being in Christ. We are justified, we're declared righteous, we have a perfect standing. But God also regenerates us, gives us a new capacity, a new disposition. We immediately become disposed toward God and holiness, and God begins the process of sanctification and producing holiness. Now, we have a part to play in that, and we'll discuss more about that next week. Page 41, number three, and finally last week, we showed that believers do not wait upon a special act of dedication or consecration in order for sanctification to begin. Remember, John Wesley never settled on an exact method of getting the second blessing, but Phoebe Palmer said it's through consecration, and that was picked up by the holiness movement then, by Keswick and uh, those theologies that followed, that the key here is our dedication, our consecration. And I was arguing last week that that's not true. We don't wait upon a special act of dedication for sanctification to begin. Neither Romans 12, 1 and 2, nor any other text teaches such. God desires a life of dedication from the believer that involves resisting conformity to this age while at the same time being transformed by the renewing of our minds into the very image of Christ. Now today I want to talk about two other issues that have come up in our discussions of these theologies, and that is the carnal Christian and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because remember we said all these theologies believe that there is a category called carnal Christians. Let's look at that. So number one, I say beginning as early as Asa Mann, remember who was the compatriot of Charles Finney, all second blessing theologies we have discussed have used the term carnal and spiritual to differentiate two different categories of Christians. The simply justified believer the carnal Christian, and the one who has also received the second blessing, the spiritual Christian. All new believers are carnal, and they remain in that category until they pass into the new spiritual category. This spiritual category that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 2, we'll see. This distinction became a core principle in Keswick teaching. The average or carnal Christian behaves much like an unbeliever. Keswick conventions were spiritual clinics designed to turn the average carnal Christian into a normal or spiritual Christian, one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. This transformation from the carnal to the spiritual Christian takes place not by a lifelong struggle, not by a long struggle, but a simple 
act of faith going forward, trusting God, dedicating, consecrating oneself. We talked about Lewis Spiri Chafer, <clears throat> the founder of Dallas Seminary, quite a bit, who founded Dallas based on Keswick theology, as we saw. He sets forth this in his book, He That Is Spiritual. And that's a kind of a key phrase because it comes from 1 Corinthians 2.15, as we'll see. Paul talks about he that is spiritual. And in that book, He That's Spiritual, he sets forth this teaching about the carnal Christian very clearly. Though others, as I said, held it before. The carnal Christian has experienced salvation from the guilt and penalty of sin... The quotations mean I'm quoting him here. In other words, justification. But he still needs, quote, a distinct form of salvation from the bond servitude of sin. So you're still a slave to sin, according to Chafer, when you're saved. Now, last week I tried to show that is totally and absolutely wrong. Romans 6 teaches that conversion breaks our bond servitude to sin and we become slaves to righteousness at conversion. But Keswick teaching says nothing is done until about our servitude to sin until this second blessing, till this consecration, until this dedication. <clears throat> Chafer says, the child of God does not need to yield to temptation when he reaches the higher plane of the spiritual man. Now there's that Wesleyan perfectionism that's still right there in Keswick. You don't need to yield to temptation. You're on this higher plane. You don't really have to sin. Thus, all believers are in the category of carnal Christians until they experience the once-for-all crisis dedication that moves them to the higher plane of the spiritual Christian and, as a result, are initially filled with the Spirit and become uh, Christ becomes Lord of their lives. It's at this point that progressive sanctification really begins. And this is really Ryrie's chart from his book, Balancing the Christian Life. We have the unsaved, you're saved, you become a carnal Christian, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, but nothing really changes. You're still in bondage to sin until this dedication, Romans 12, 1, you accept Christ as your Savior, you're filled with the, uh, as your Lord, you're filled with the Spirit, you dedicate, you consecrate, and you begin to make progress at some later time. Number three, Bill Bright, the head of Campus Crusade for Christ, wrote a track in 1965 entitled The Four Spiritual Laws. In that track, there appeared the diagram below, clearly reflecting the idea of two categories of Christians. And this popularized this idea, and there it is on page 42. The natural man, the unsaved man. The carnal man on the right, the Christian who is just... Save, but not really trusting God, as he says, and then spiritual man. Number three, the terms natural, carnal, and spiritual come from most English translations of 1 Corinthians 2.14 through 3.4. So I've put the King James there beside it because that's what this teaching is based upon, the King James Version here. And I put the NIV beside it. Now, as you'll see... If we just had the NIV, we wouldn't even have this problem. The NIV corrects a ton of problems here. But the history is we are taking this theology from the words in the King James Version. So you see the phrase, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God in verse 14, for they are foolishness unto him. 
Now, the NIV notice translates that the person without the spirit. Verse 15, but he that is spiritual. So there's a contrast between the natural man and verse 14 and verse 15, he that's spiritual. That's the title of Chafer's book. But the NIV translates that's the person with the spirit. So you can see that the King James is sort of making a distinction between the natural man and a more spiritual person. The NIV is making a, a distinction between the person without the spirit, the unsaved person, and the person with the spirit, the saved person. It's just making a distinction between saved and lost, which is the correct distinction. And then in verse 16, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, I'm sorry, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal. Now, the King James translates that uh, worldly. So you see down through there, verse 3, for you're yet carnal. The, the NIV, I'm sorry, translates that worldly. So it's the same, carnal, worldly, fleshly, roughly synonymous terms. All right, let's see what that means. Page 43. Beginning at chapter 2, verse 6, we're going back here a little further. Paul contrasts two groups or categories of people. The unsaved who do not understand the wisdom of God's plan of salvation in the gospel and the saved who do. What divides these two groups is the Holy Spirit. First, we're told in 2.14 that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the natural man is the Greek word sukikos, sukikos, which the standard lexicon, Greek lexicon, defines as one who is mere, one who merely functions bodily without being touched by the Spirit of God. So the dictionary is saying this person is not touched by the Spirit of God. And I say we're helped even further here if we look at how the word is used in Jude 19. In Jude 19 we read, These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, that's the word sukikos, who are sukikos and do not have the Spirit. So a sukikos person, the natural man, is a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And the NIV translators have made this clear with their translation of 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So we can say that the natural man is the unregenerate man because, as Paul reminds us elsewhere, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So we understand who the natural man is. There's no debate about that. That's the unsaved person who does not possess is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Number five, Paul says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. The natural man, the man without the Spirit, rejects God's truth. He openly is hostile to it and is unable to see its significance. The reason for this response is made clear in the last part of verse 14. Because they're spiritually discerned. The natural man does not receive, he doesn't welcome the things that come from God. He can't know them, verse 14, because they're spiritually discerned. 
The phrase spiritually discerned does not refer to a kind of interpretation that is spiritual. The word spiritually is an adverb derived from the word spiritual in verse 15. It means by means of the Spirit, that is, by means of the Holy Spirit. The things that come from the Spirit of God can only be discerned by means of that same Spirit. But the natural man cannot understand, he cannot discern correctly the significance and implications of biblical truth because he is spiritually defective. He's not equipped for the task. He lacks the one essential ingredient, the Spirit of God. The natural man is spiritually dead. He has no spiritual life. And again, this is all made clear by the NIV translation. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The words spiritually discerned in the King James Version are more accurately translated discerned through the Spirit in the NIV. Verse number 6. In contrast to the natural man of verse 14, Paul says in verse 15... But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. He that is spiritual is the translation of a single Greek word, pneumatikos. It literally means something like having to do with the spirit. And if you've heard people talk about various Greek words, you've heard them talk about the word for spirit is pneuma. pneuma. Well, this is pneumatikos, so it's related to the word spirit. Translated in the King James by he that is spiritual. But in Paul's language, he that is spiritual or the spiritual man is simply the person who possesses the spirit in contrast to the natural man who does not. Everything in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians indicates that Paul is looking at two classes of people and only two. Paul views the Corinthians as spiritual because uh, people people in that they have the spirit in spite of their problems. Again, this is all made clear by the NIV translation. The person with the spirit, see it translates he that is spiritual, translates that pneumatikos as the person with the spirit makes judgment about all things, makes judgments about all things. Though the King James translation of pneumatikos in verse 15 as he that is spiritual sounds like Paul is referring to a higher class of Christian, this misunderstands the meaning of that Greek term pneumatikos, which simply means a person who possesses the spirit. That's all believers, as the NIV makes clear. So Paul is contrasting the person without the spirit in verse 14 with the spirit with the person who has the spirit in verse 15. In our common Christian parlance, we may speak of, spirit, of, of a spiritual Christian. Or we may say that one Christian is more spiritual than another. It's hard not to say that. There are levels of maturity in the Christian life. No one would deny that. But that is not what Paul means by the term pneumatikos. In Paul's language, it is redundant to speak of a spiritual Christian to be spiritual to be nematikos, to have the spirit is to be a Christian, pure and simple. That's why the NIV translates nematikos as the person with the spirit. Number eight, so in 2.14 through 15, 
Paul speaks of two categories of people. The person without the Spirit, verse 14, and the person with the Spirit in verse 15. The regenerate, the person without, the unregenerate, the person without the Spirit in verse 14, and the regenerate, the person with the Spirit in verse 15. The person without the Spirit, excuse me, the person with the Spirit is the term pneumatikos, which is unfortunately translated he that is spiritual in the King James Version. But the term pneumatikos does not refer to a distinct category of Christian who has received the second blessing, who has reached some higher plane of spirituality, who has completely surrendered to the Lord, and who has made Christ Lord of his life. Every believer is pneumatikos because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Number nine. In three one, Paul says he could not speak to the Corinthians as unto spiritual, that is pneumatikos, those who have the Spirit. Paul does not say the Corinthians do not have the Spirit, but that because the majority of them are manifesting certain kinds of non-Christian behavior, they do not deserve to be called pneumatikos, people with the Spirit. The Corinthians, or at least a good number of them, are not thinking and acting like pneumatikos, people with the Spirit. But Paul cannot and does not call them psuchikos. He doesn't say you don't have the Spirit. They are pneumatikos. They are people with the Spirit. But he doesn't say you're a pneumatikos, people without the Spirit, because as believers, they do have it. Do have the Spirit. Number 10. Sometimes believers act like unbelievers. And when they do, they are acting carnally. What the NIV calls worldly. The word carnal, sarkanos here in three one means made of flesh, that is merely human. Because the Corinthians had received the Spirit, Paul cannot call the Corinthians psuchikos, people without the Spirit, even if they were acting that way. He avoids accusing them of not having the Spirit altogether, but at the same time he forces them to face up to their sinful condition by calling them carnal, people who are displaying characteristics of the old nature. So we conclude that in three, in one, in first Corinthians two fourteen through three four, Paul has only two categories of people in view: those without the Spirit and those with the Spirit. The carnal Christian is simply a genuine Christian, a nematikos, temporarily gone astray. One writer, Reisinger, observes this. He says. I also recognize that there is a sense in which Christians may be said to be carnal. But I must add that there are different degrees of carnality. Every Christian is carnal in some areas of his life and at many times in life. And in every Christian, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Although a Christian can be called carnal, their whole spiritual life cannot be categorized as such. They cannot be put into the category of carnal Christians because there is no such category. Every single Christian could be called a carnal Christian because every Christian is carnal to some degree, to the degree that they're not fully sanctified. There is no distinct category of carnal Christian. Here's B.B. Warfield again. He says, The remainders of the flesh in the Christian do not constitute his characteristic. We're saved, Warfield says, 
We we receive a new disposition, but we still have the remains of the old there. He is in the Spirit and is walking with however halting steps by the Spirit. And it is to all Christians not to some that the great promise is given. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And the great assurance is added because you are not under law but under grace. He who believes in Jesus Christ is under grace. And his whole course in its process and its issues alike is determined by grace. And therefore, having been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, he is surely being conformed to that image. God himself seeing to it that he is not only called and justified, but also glorified. You may find Christians at every stage of this process. For it is a process through which all must pass. But you will find none who will not in God's own good time and way pass through every stage of it. There are not two kinds of Christians, although there are Christians at every conceivable stage of advancement towards the one goal in which all are bound and at which all shall arrive. So what happens here is that Wesley comes up with the idea of this second work of grace, this second blessing. It develops over time in the holiness movement, in the Keswick movement. And as time goes along, people look for scriptures to justify that teaching. So if you believe that people are saved, but they need another experience of sanctification, people will come up with scriptures to try to say, okay, that's what that scripture is talking about. That's where the carnal Christian comes from. They see Paul talk, they call, they see the Corinthians being called carnal, and so they come up and say, that's a whole new category of Christian who has never had the second blessing. Well, of course, that's not what Paul is talking about at all, as we've seen. As we said, Wesley never talked about the Holy Spirit when he talked about the second blessing, but quickly, others did. So when we talk about How do you get the second blessing and what is the second blessing or what is entire sanctification or what is this victorious life or what is this higher life? It's associated with dedication or consecration and it's often tied very closely, always tied with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if you want this higher life, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to dedicate. You've got to consecrate yourself. So let's talk about this area of the filling of the Holy Spirit and just briefly the baptism of the Spirit. As I said again here, Wesley never talked about the doctrine of sanctification with the Holy Spirit. He didn't discuss that. But quickly, the man who was supposed to replace him and be his, uh, who followed him, John Fletcher, he started talking about the experience of entire sanctification as the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. And eventually all holiness movement people talked about the second blessing, Phoebe Palmer with her simple method of simple way of dedication, talked about the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Keswick teaching broke away from the idea of the baptism that it's the filling. They distinguished between the baptism and the filling And they said, no, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit we're talking about. I say this is especially true of like Chafer, Ryrie, and others who promote this form of teaching. According to Chafer, 
All new Christians are carnal Christians who can move out of their carnal state and begin the process of sanctification only through the filling of the Holy Spirit. John F. Walbert, the successor to Chafer as president of Dallas Seminary, says, the filling of the Holy Spirit is the secret of sanctification. So they put a lot of emphasis on this filling of the Holy Spirit, dedication, filling brings this new stage, this spiritual Christian. You move out of the carnal category. Number two, the reasons why Keswick and later theologies stop using the term baptism of the Spirit to refer to the second blessing is because the baptism and filling of the Spirit are clearly distinguished in Scripture and the baptism of the Spirit has nothing to do with sanctification but is an instantaneous act that takes place at conversion. <clears throat> now, Pastor Ken has explained the baptism. I know I've been here this last year a few times, but I'm just going to say a few words about it. The baptism of the Spirit is clearly described in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all, not some of us, we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Spirit baptism, I say, is easily understood. The word baptize means to immerse when used literally, as in the case of water baptism. But sometimes it means immerse in the figurative sense of being identified or being united with. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.2, Paul says that all the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, the Israelites were united with Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea and the wilderness. So accordingly, in 1 Corinthians 12.13, spirit baptism means that we all, that is all believers, we're united with Christ at conversion. All, at conversion, all believers become part of the body of Christ. We are immersed, are placed into the body of Christ. That's how we're in Christ. So, spirit baptism has nothing to do with sanctification per se. That's why Keswick disassociated the idea of baptism and said, no, it's the filling. Number three. The command to be filled with the Spirit is set forth in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Interestingly, at least when I wrote that, it was interesting to me. <laughs> Interestingly, until the popularity of second blessing theologies in the 1800s, there appears to be little discussion of Paul's words in most of church history. You just have to take my word on that. <laughs> there are ways to search church history, believe it or not. There are books of the church fathers, the early church writers. You can look at the medieval theologians. You can look at the Reformation. You can, you can search. You can do a lot of searching, especially in the computer age and so forth. And I spent a lot of time searching. <laughs> I looked at a lot of books. But you just don't find discussions of Ephesians 5.18. Even after the Reformation starts, Luther and Calvin, they don't really... Calvin, in his commentary, barely says anything about this. So I say, until the 1800s, the only interest in the passage was Paul's command not to get drunk. So you can find discussions in earlier about that part of Ephesians 5.18. Because down through the centuries... 
Christians have been arguing it's wrong to be drunk, so they'll cite Ephesians 5.18 talking about drunkenness, but that's the part. They don't talk about the filling of the Spirit part, just the drunkenness part. There was no mention of the filling of the Holy Spirit as an element in the believer's sanctification. This all changed in the 19th century, the 1800s, especially the rise of Keswick theology. The filling of the Spirit is understood to be what enables the counteraction of the natures such that a continual state of victory over sin is obtained. Now, remember I said in the Keswick theology, you have the old nature, which never changes, and the new nature, which never changes. And you have this counteraction. That's the term that they use. Counteraction is the term Ryrie uses to describe it. Counteraction and the Holy Spirit is what keeps these things in stasis. So you're rising above. You don't need to yield to temptation, as Chafer says. It enables this continual state of victory over sin. Number four. Though our main interest is in Ephesians 5.18, since this is the text that is universally appealed to, in discussions of sanctification... We must briefly note that the filling of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in other places in the New Testament. And we need to know if these other references are related to Ephesians 5.18. In the Gospel of Luke and Acts, there are 14 references to the filling of the Holy Spirit or being full of the Spirit. These references use slightly different words and grammatical constructions in the Greek language. So when you study these, you'll see that there are two different Greek words that are used and the construction, the case usage is different. Even though they're all translated the same way, filling or be filled, it's the same. Based on the different wording and grammatical constructions, we can divide these 14 references into two categories. What we might call special filling, and I've listed the references in Luke and Acts there, and what we might call ordinary filling. Number five, let's talk about the first one. An example of special filling of the Spirit is Acts 2.4. On the day of Pentecost, we are told the apostles were together, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A special filling like Acts 2.4 is a special act of divine enablement generally related to a verbal proclamation. So if you look at all those references in Luke, those eight references in Acts, you'll see it's when they talk about the filling there, it's talking about usually a verbal proclamation, like here. A special filling is not the result of prayerful seeking. In fact, no conditions have to be met to obtain it, since each one is sovereignly given by God. This special filling in the New Testament is similar, in some ways, to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Old Testament saints to accomplish a divinely given task. So this is often compared to the fact that sometimes God sovereignly bestowed his spirit on people in the Old Testament to accomplish a task. He just just gave them the spirit. It it had nothing to do with their, their own spiritual lives, their own level of sanctification. I cite here Exodus 31. That's the example where the Israelites are building the tabernacle. And God says, he says, See, I have chosen Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, and the tribe of the tribe of Judah, 
And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with knowledge, with understanding, with, with knowledge of all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. So he didn't have to go to trade school or be apprenticed, you know. This guy knew tool making from day one. You know, he just, he had it, you know, and he could make those things needed for the tabernacle because he had this filling of the spirit. Page 47. One can debate whether these special fillings occur today. You could debate that. You could say maybe sometimes God brings the spirit on people for special acts and things. That's, you know. My own opinion is that they ended with the apostolic age. Regardless, for our purposes, special filling has no necessary correlation to, to the sanctification or spiritual growth of the individual. It's never commanded. Number six, the other case. An example of the ordinary filling of the Spirit is the election of the deacons in Acts 6. We're told they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The ordinary filling of the Spirit is related to the spiritual character of the believer. One who is filled with the Spirit displays the fruit of the Spirit. Ordinary filling describes a quality of life, something that is characteristic of the believer. The deacons in Acts 6 are described as having a lifestyle characterized by wisdom, faith, and the Holy Spirit. The idea is that of a godly believer, someone whose spiritual maturity is apparent to all. This is the same idea found in Ephesians 5.18. When Paul exhorts the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, he wants them to keep on exhibiting those qualities that are characteristic of the Spirit, what Paul calls elsewhere the fruit of the Spirit. This is the natural and normal progress of sanctification as a believer continues in their obedience to God. But let's dig a little deeper into this idea in Ephesians 5.18, the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Let's think a little more about what Paul is saying there. <clears throat> I say Paul cannot mean in Ephesians 5.18 that the Ephesians are to be filled with something they do not possess. The apostle is addressing professing believers in 5.18 and all believers are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All second blessing theologies that we have discussed suggests that even though the believer is indwelt by the Spirit, this latter ministry, that is the indwelling, is not sufficient to bring about their sanctification. Some new experience of the Spirit is required. Unfortunately, what this does is minimize the divine effects of the initial conversion, that is regeneration, and bring and apply all the transformational qualities of the believer's salvation to some second work of grace some special post-conversion experience, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Number eight, but it's doubtful that Paul is actually issuing a command in Ephesians 5.18 for a new ministry of the Holy Spirit beyond what has already begun and is being accomplished by the indwelling of the Spirit. Since Ephesians 5.18 is the only reference to being filled with the Spirit in all of Paul's epistles, we should be very cautious about making this one command the essential agreement to the believer's sanctification. Walbert says it's the secret to sanctification. Well, if it's the secret, why don't you mention it in some of your other epistles, Paul? Paul has much to say about sanctification in his letters. So if the need to be filled with the Spirit is an essential part of that doctrine, why doesn't he explain it? Why doesn't he talk about it 
elsewhere. Number nine, I am arguing that there has been somewhat of an overemphasis on the command to be filled with the Spirit in some circles. But I am in no way attempting to diminish the essential role of the Spirit in the believer's sanctification. Theologian John Murray, who was adamantly opposed to Keswick teaching, still rightly calls the Holy Spirit the agent of sanctification. He goes on to say, The mode of the Spirit's operation in sanctification is encompassed with mystery. The Spirit indwells us. God's working on us in sanctification. We'll talk more about that next week. What is God doing? But it's not perfectly clear. The scriptures don't tell us all the details. We do not know the mode of the Spirit's indwelling or the mode of his efficient working in the hearts and minds and will of God's people, by which they are progressively cleansed from the defilement of sin and more and more transfigured after the image of Christ. While we must not do prejudice to the fact that the Spirit's work in our hearts reflects itself in our awareness and consciousness, while we must not relegate sanctification to the realm of the subconscious and fail to recognize that sanctification draws within its orbit the whole field of conscious activity on our part, yet we must also appreciate the fact that there's an agency on the part of the Holy Spirit that far surpasses analysis or introspection on our part. The effects of this constant and uninterrupted agency come within the scope of our consciousness in understanding, feeling, and will. Will, But we must not suppose that the measure of our understanding or experience is the measure of the Spirit's working. In every distinct and particular movement of the Spirit, in the way of wholeness, there's an energizing activity of the Holy Spirit. And when we try to discover what the mode of that exercise of His grace and power is, we realize how far we are from being able to to diagnose the secret workings of the Spirit. So I say the Spirit works mightily to bring about the believer's sanctification, but he does so continuously from the moment of regeneration, and this operation does not wait upon the believer to seek a special filling of the Spirit. Number 10, in order to get at Paul's meaning at Ephesians 5.18, we should begin by discussing the imperative, the command, be filled. This command is in the present tense in the Greek language, which has a customary force. The idea being to simply continue something that is already begun. The Ephesians are urged to continue to be filled with the Spirit, not to begin to be filled with the Spirit. Because all believers in Christ are Spirit-filled in the sense that they are indwelt by the Spirit, Paul's imperative is to keep on being full of the Holy Spirit. The command to keep on being filled with the Spirit is most likely another example of what we classified earlier as ordinary filling. When Paul exhorts the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, he wants them to keep on exhibiting those qualities that are characteristic of the Spirit, that indwells them. What Paul calls elsewhere the fruit of the Spirit. This is the natural and normal progress of sanctification as a believer continues in their obedience to God. Number 11, we are helped in our understanding by the parallel to Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. There Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly, dwell, uh, excuse me, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here we have another imperative, the imperative dwell. 
let the word of Christ richly dwell. The imperative dwell in 3.16 has the same customary force as be filled in Ephesians 5.18. Continue to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Keep on letting the word of Christ dwell in you. The word of Christ means the word about Christ. To let the word of Christ dwell within you speaks to at least an intention to and obedience to the word of God. Note the parallel on page 49 between Paul's words in Ephesians and Colossians. So on the left, we have Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And we have similar results. Ephesians speaking to one another in Psalms. Colossians teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns. Ephesians singing and making melody. Colossians singing with thankfulness in your heart. Ephesians giving thanks for all things. Colossians giving thanks through him. Very similar. The similarity of language and structure suggests a strong thematic connection between being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within you with both resulting in the same things. When the ministry of the Spirit is evident in the life of the believer, it is naturally to speak of that one as being filled with the Spirit. That filling is seen in certain character traits Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, and certain activities activities he describes in Ephesians 5, 19 through 20. These activities are also associated with letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you, Colossians 3, 16 and 17. These activities in Ephesians and Colossians are not exhaustive, but only exemplary of a holy lifestyle. The filling of the Holy Spirit is no unique spiritual highlight in the life of the believer. Instead, it's the normal experience of the believer as they increasingly strive to live a life that is in obedience to God and his word. Paul's exhortation is to continue or keep on being filled with the Spirit. Paul encourages the Ephesians to keep on acting like spirit people, to display those character qualities that are typical of their new life in Christ. There is no scriptural basis for believers to seek a special experience called the filling of the Spirit in order to begin the process of sanctification. Rather, we should focus our attention on living obedient lives that are increasingly characterized by the Spirit's presence. Therefore, Walbert is wrong when he argues that the filling of the Spirit is the secret of sanctification. If there is a secret, so-called, it can be summarized by the word obedience. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. And we pray that we might be Christians who are letting and continuing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and that we might be those Christians that display the filling of the Holy Spirit and that the word of Christ will dwell richly in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.